You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 17th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Evening, gents. Hello. Tara is on a shoot this week and could not make time to do the show. Uh, She does actually have a really busy schedule. Yeah, it's amazing, actually, that she carves out a night every week for us, but this week just couldn't make it happen. Yeah, we do have a great interview coming up later in the show with Kevin Fulta. Uh, always a pleasure to have him on the show. But first, Bob, we're going to start with some forgotten superheroes of science. And speaking of Kevin Fulta, I would like to thank him for um, suggesting this person. So for my superheroes of science this week, I will be covering Nikolai Vavilov. 1887 to 1943, he was a Russian geneticist, geographer, ergonomist, plant breeder, and a few other things. Mm. He was ahead of his time with his innovations in genetics and plant breeding, and he's considered the father of modern seed banks. Now, Vavilov had a dream of using uh, new genetics-based agricultural practices to create enough food to end hunger and famines in the world. He called it a mission for all humanity. So to that end, he traveled the world, uh, essentially visiting 64 countries on five continents. This guy learned 15 languages during in this process. Whoa, unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Impressive. He talked to farmers, which is something scientists that really weren't doing at that time. He sent over a quarter million seeds home, creating the first and today the oldest seed bank in the world. Uh, he was the first to realize the importance or among the first to realize the importance of plant diversity. And as one writer put it, all of our notions about biological diversity and needing diversity of foods on our plates to keep us healthy sprung from his work many decades ago. Um, His story is also among the most tragic and sad in biology as well. Uh, His student, Lysenko, who you may have heard of, rejected Mm -hmm. Mendelian genetics, uh, replacing it with rank pseudoscience. Pseudoscience. This quack biology fit well into Stalin's political ideology, so he put him in charge of all Russian agricultural concerns. This led uh, to the efforts to uh, to discredit Vavilov, ultimately leading to the deaths of many of, of his researchers and uh, Vavilov's interrogation, um, and him being completely discredited and imprisonment, ultimately, despite his uh, appeals to science. Uh, when the when the Nazis overran his research facility in 1941, after Vavilov was already in prison, his researchers famously barricaded mm. themselves inside to protect the seed bank, even allowing some of them to starve to death to preserve his work instead of eating the seeds or even uh, giving them to the to the populace. Vavilov resorted to discussing science with his cellmates. He even wrote a decent book there, uh, but he was also forced and resorted to eating frozen cabbage and moldy flour for a year and a half. This amazing scientist who survived famines while growing up and only wanted to feed the world eventually starved in the gulag. Just an amazing story. So tragic. So remember Nikolai Vavilov? Mention him to your friends, perhaps when discussing the law of homologous series in hereditary variation, or perhaps when you're eating cabbage. Yeah, the Lysenko and Lysenkoism was one of the most, I think, tragic stories in the history of science. And a great example of something that we talk about a lot, which yeah. is uh, what happens when you subvert science With and ideology. critical thinking to ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And that Absolutely. ideology does not have to be religious. It wasn't nope. in this case. Yeah. 
All right, so let's go on to some news items. Jay, this one, you and I both independently came up with this news item to talk about this week because it's so darn cool, but you got to tell mm. us how real this is. This is about long-term digital storage. Yeah, they're calling it 5D storage. And you know what? If this is legit, right, because, you know, right now it's still very early. The news item came out um, Tuesday, um, I believe, what was it, the 15th? Of February 2016, so you know there's a lot more data that we need. But here's 16th. what the, here's what the company is saying, and here's what um, everyone is is claiming to be true. I'm going to start with Steve. Answer a few questions for me. First, you have more data than you know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Would you like your data storage to last a very long time? Sure. These awesome researchers at the University of Southampton's Opto Electronics Research Center have created a new way to store data. They created a nano-structured quartz glass, roughly the size of a coin, that can record and retrieve digital data. So how does it work? Mm. How does it work? Thank you. 5D, baby. They use a femtosecond laser that writes the data in a three-dimensional space. And this is where the dots are burned physically into the disk, right? So when we say 5D, we're talking about five dimensions. We have the three the three of those five dimensions are the physical 3D or where they are up, down, left, and right. And there are two more dimensions that are encoded by the polarity and intensity of the beam that creates the dot. And that's how you get to the 5D storage, the way that they, they're naming it. Also, Jay, 3D, up, down, left, right, and forward, back. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. So excited about this, Bob. I, I had to rush through it. <laughs> So like I said, the data is written into three layers of nanostructured dots, and these are five uh, micrometers apart, and that's one millionth of a meter. So we're talking about intensely compact data, you know, like the, the, the things that we would consider to be a bit of data. They're super, super tight. They're not wasting any space here. And what they're doing when they write data is they're changing the way light travels through the glass, and this modifies the polarization of the light. Reading the data is done with both the, an optical microscope and a polarizer because they have to not only look at a very, very small area with the microscope, but then they have to use the polarizer to, to read the data that, that's written into the polarization because that's what they're changing. And they shoot, so they shoot light through the dots, they read the orientation of the light waves, and bingo, you have digital data. I'm sure you're wondering, because I was, how much data can one disk store? You know, what do you think? You know, right out of the gate. Oh, you know, what is this? You know, 20 terabytes or whatever. No, I'm sorry. It's quite a bit more than 20 terabytes. Mm-hmm. 360 terabytes of data. 360. That's a lot. Yep. Now, now, let me remind you. I said this is roughly the size of a, a coin that can easily fit in your palm. Yeah, it's, it's like not, a half a dollar if you're an American. You know, yeah, U.S. dollar. It's not that big. You know, maybe, you know, give it like three quarters of an inch tops. That's an epically huge amount of data storage and in a magnificently small container. The other amazing thing is that these disks can withstand up to 1,000 degrees Celsius, 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit of temperature. That's about as hot as lava is. Mm-hmm. Let that lava's sink in. Lava's about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, I think. I think it's lava starts at around 700 degrees Fahrenheit. So you it up. can't even throw okay. it into Mordor and destroy it. That's well, impressive. <laughs> now if you, if you, of course, if it got to those temperatures, it's going to suffer and its lifespan will decrease. But if you want the disk to last a long time, if you keep it at a steady top temp of around 150 degrees Celsius or 350 degrees Fahrenheit, not not a temperature that this thing, you know, most things that we touch and, and are in our day-to-day lives will ever encounter. You can leave it mm-hmm. on the dashboard of your car in the middle of the summer. You do right. that, this thing will last, re- you know, a really long time. 
How long? Jay? Like like a hundred years? No, Steve. A thousand years? years? No, no, not a thousand years. Ten thousand years? The latest version of the disc will last fourteen billion years. Fourteen that all? billion years. If it stays Wait. within its temperature zone, 150 degrees Celsius, 350 degrees Fahrenheit, it'll last 14 billion years. And in essence, they're saying it's going to last forever. There's yeah. No degradation of the data. That's it. Sorry, but this is going to last Whoa. forever. Bob, how long is 14 billion years, you might ask? Come on. I No, I would never ask that. Longer than the age of the universe. Wow. By half a billion years. And the Earth, you know, is only about 4.5 billion years old. So your data will survive in outer space until essentially the end of all time. Is that – you want more information? That's well, impressive. you know, it would be on the Earth. It, you know, it would stay until the Earth orbits decayed through the, through the propagation of gravitational waves and impact the sun or, the, you know, it could be engulfed by the sun. But yeah, long time. Gotcha. Long time. Jay, so, what do I need to use this thing? Do I have to put it into some special device, computer of some sort? Now, or? that's what this I was like, trying to find, Ev, because I wanted to know uh, – there are a few unanswered questions here. I could not find any data on. One of them is how fast is the read-write? More importantly, how fast is yeah. the read? Because this is a this is an, a read – I'm sorry. You write to this disk, then you could read from it, but you can't rewrite to it. Yeah. As you know a, what I mean? Yeah. It's not a hard drive. This is a data storage. So you could take right. all of your data – you know, every year, dump it onto this disk, and then you you know you have it backed up forever, and you have, don't have to worry about it. Now, I think, of course, right now, I don't even think you can buy anything to do with this yet. It hasn't hit the market yet. Yeah. And I, and I'm sure that the 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 reading and writing machines that you would need are pretty expensive right now. But it'll come down very quickly once once this starts to be mass produced. And I, and I yeah, Jay, I, I yeah, I mean, if we if we if that actually becomes commercial, and you could just store. Every bit of data you have on it, and you could somehow write to it. If you wanted to read it on on your computer, then yeah, it would probably you, you would need a device, you know, a, a, an electronic expensive device. But I think one of the one of the great things about this is that to read it, you don't you don't need advanced technology. You could potentially read this using a microscope and like a polarized lens. So yeah. that's some that's something that a civilization. Any civilization should be able to muster. I don't know if I agree, Bob. About be you know, you, well, you're coming off like really positive, like you know, an alien species, or like let's say, you know, a million years goes by, human race has evolved to a point where we you know, there isn't any memory of what was happening during you know this year or this time. It's a big deal to read like a foreign data source. Think about like if there's no association with the language, if you know they they have to. They'd have to take that raw data, those raw bits, assemble them some way to make something meaningful out of it. I think that's a that's a tall order. I mean, I, I would. Yeah, if they were starting from scratch, they had literally no idea what how to translate the bits of information. I could see how that would be challenging. On the other hand, if they do have like advanced computer technology, it's not unreasonable that they would have. You know, a computer algorithm that would look for patterns and that would be able to essentially decode sure. d- decode the uh, the computer language. Uh, that seems reasonable. So, yeah. Well, the point the point is though is that the, the biggest stumbling blocks for this type of thing is to be able to create data that you that you know will stick around for millennia. And that's the big hurdle. Once you get past that, then yeah, they've got to, you've got to be able to interpret it, but you don't need fancy technology to see the data. And then interpreting it, that's another stumbling block, but it's not as big as actually making it survive that long. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you might imagine if our civilization collapses and then a million years from now, 10 million years from now, 
either there's a new civilization here or there's alien visitors or if they can come across these disks, they'd still exist. They'd still have the data intact. You know, we could document our entire civilization with that kind of storage capacity. You know? Yeah, and I'm sure that um, they could even make further improvements on it. Sure. Make it, make it store more. I look at it like this. If I were able to use this service, you know, I could understand. Maybe I walk my hard drives into a company that has the machines. They make the disks for me. I bring them back. You know, I'm hoping that I, I I would have something on my computer that could read them eventually, right? You know, I just don't know enough about this yet to know like how we're going to read, write, and the average person will have access to it. Let's say that there's reading or writing is not commercially available because the the writing device or the reading device costs way too much for the consumer. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, a, yeah, a company could – I could imagine a, a model, a business model where a company has it like Walmart or whatever. You, know, you go in there with – as you say, you bring in your 8-terabyte hard drive or whatever is the standard at that time. And they will write one or more copies of all of your data and they give them to you. And then you have them for, for permanent storage. Maybe you keep one out of your home in case your home burns down on a fire, you know, whatever. And then if you ever need them, if a disaster happens and you need them, you could bring it back to the company and they can download the, the information onto a conventional hard drive or whatever you're using at that time. So you wouldn't really ever need to have the device yourself. This is not something that you're going to be using at any point. It's just permanent, massive volume storage that uh, you have as an emergency, you know, backup. Right. That will or, last for your entire life and into your great, great, great grandkids could access it. Yes. Yeah. These things could become family heirlooms. Imagine four or five generations from now, somebody will have a, one of these discs that has 10,000 photos on it documenting oh, yeah. generations of their ancestors' lives, you know, like what life it's was a time like. Time capsule. Yeah, yeah. It's a time capsule. Absolutely. That's amazing. Let's move on. This is another technology item, 3D printing body parts. And I know we've probably mentioned Mm. this previously, but there was a recent study documenting a pretty significant advance in this technology. So the idea here is that you use essentially 3D printing technology in order to create a three-dimensional body part intended for transplantation, like, for example, an ear or a piece of a jaw or a piece of bone that you that needs to be precisely shaped and for implantation, right? And it needs to be made out of living cells. Part of the limitation here is so what what uh prior to this most recent uh technological advance that we're going to talk about, the biggest limiting factor is that when they are printing with living tissue, it's essentially embedded in a matrix uh that feeds it and supports it. But it still needs nutrients and oxygen. You, but you can't print blood vessels. Uh, you can print muscle, cartilage, bone, connective tissue, basically skin, you know. But not, you can't build the microscopic capillaries necessary to have a functional circulatory system, right? Right. What you hope happens is that after you attach the body part that you printed, that blood vessels grow into it, which does happen. You know, the blood vessels will sense the decreased oxygen in the tissue and that triggers, you know, a signal saying, you know, send some blood vessels this way and they'll grow into, you know, the new body part. Until that happens, the oxygen and nutrients have to diffuse directly into the tissue. And this has a limit of between 100 and 200 micrometers, which is very small. Mm-hmm. And so this has been too small to be clinically useful, 
right? You can only get these very, very thin structures, but not not what the scientists are calling a clinically you know relevant size. That was the primary problem that this new technique has been designed to address. The new system is called Integrated Tissue Organ Printer, or ITOP, and uh, they have extended this diffusion limit by incorporating in the structure these pores or these microchannels that essentially turn it into a sponge so it could, you know, soak up the nutrients and the oxygen and, and allow it to penetrate much more deeply into the printed tissue. In the study, they printed a body part that was 3.2 by 1.6 by 0.9 centimeters. You know, 3.2 centimeters, now we're talking. Right now we're getting to actually something big enough that it's it has some functionality, like an ear, you know, something like that. And essentially, the system worked. Now, the other thing that they do is they have – so there's a th- several types of material they use. They have hydrogels, which have this the living cells in them. And then they have two supporting materials, an internal polymer and a sacrificial – what they call a sacrificial scaffolding that is very temporary. That just sort of keeps the shape – Temporarily. Temporarily. But also the, the – uh, the polymer itself will degrade over one and a half to two years. That's an advance mm-hmm. too, because that lasts long enough that there's time for the new body part to again to to incorporate blood vessels for the the connective tissue, the fibroblasts, to secrete their own protein matrix, which will slowly replace the polymer matrix. Right, so essentially, plastic in structural components will be replaced by protein over about 1.5 to 2 years. Eventually, you get just a normal living body part with maybe even nerves, blood vessels, its own structure, and the, the fake parts have been replaced. Yeah, how does, the, how does the nerve network evolve during the course of that time? Does it just sort of naturally grow into this uh, Well, that's the goal. Part? That's the hope is that, you know, depending on, it depends on the situation, but you'd like the nerves to grow into it. You can't print nerves. Again, that's another thing you can't do. There's no point to that. I mean, the nerve bodies live elsewhere. You know, they have to be connected centrally. Otherwise, there's, what's the point? So you, right. you can't print them either. It's a significant practical limitation to printing body parts. Is it's, you know, it's skin, bone, cartilage, uh, connective tissue, but not, not blood vessels or nerves. But, you know, this could be used to also print organs. You know, like you could theoretically mm-hmm. print liver, you know, or heart muscle or, pancreas or whatever, if you get the right cells. So is this a game changer, Steve? Well, this is one advance on this approach to regenerative medicine or just replacing lost damage disease tissue. It, it essentially is a huge advance for the 3D printing approach. It gets us to biologically relevant sizes and also helps uh, the technique is an improvement on maintaining its shape and infrastructure until it can grow enough to to hold its own shape. So this is at the point now where you know once once the uh, animal testing phase is complete, uh we could move on to human testing. And so some of the experts are saying, you know, 5 to 10 years before we're going to be doing studies in which we're transplanting the uh, body parts printed by this technique into human subjects. So that means it could be 15 to 20 years before this is in routine clinical use, you know, outside of the context of a study of an experiment. Um, so, you know, this is unfortunately we go through this all the time, right? We hear about cool, awesome technology 15 to 20 years before they're really ready for prime time. 
Uh, that's essentially where we are with this because it just takes so long to do the studies, right? Because you want to see before you transplant a body part onto somebody, you need to know that it's going to survive for years, right? If, they, if these things become necrotic and die after six months, that's not very useful. In fact, that could be dangerous. It takes years to study something that takes years. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it just will take a long time to really see and then even then we're going to be using them before we really have like 15 or 20 year follow up, you know what I mean? And over this time I'm sure the technology is going to be evolving too. Of course, you know? right. yeah. sure. Yeah, it's not like it's going to be locked into where it is right now. So this is exciting though. I mean, this is showing yeah, this is a significant advance and it kind of giving us a feel for where we are in the development of this technology. Again, you could see that we already can sort of 3D print prosthetics, you know. If we mm-hmm. like again, you need to like replace a piece of your skull with something that's precisely shaped and that will fit into it exactly. We could use imaging and then 3D printing technology to create that. But now this is then taking it to doing it with living cells, and you know we're now we're getting at the point where we can do that as well. Uh, and again, maybe one to two decades before it's actually being incorporated into practice. This also got me thinking about what are the other technologies that this is competing with. You know, like the essentially. Replacing body parts. Uh, 3D printing is just one approach. Another approach is it's regrowing uh, them. Is regrowing them, regrowing them from stem cells, either in vitro or in vivo, in situ. You know, in growing, regrowing them where they're going to ultimately live, or you you regrow them somewhere else in a donor, in an animal, or in a petri dish, or whatever. And then once it's ready and functioning, you then transplant it into the patient. That I think. That has several advantages is in that if you are growing an entire uh, structure like a limb or an organ, if you're growing it, uh, then you get all of the structures already integrated, the nerves, the blood vessels, the ducts, you know, everything is there. Uh, the 3D printing I think is good for um, just like structures but not necessarily for like an ear is like I think a perfect example or just like a piece of bone or something like that. But for something like an entire limb where you have nerves and blood vessels incorporated into all of that, I don't know that the 3D printing is ever going to be the solution, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it right. may play it – may, it may. I mean, I, I can't say that for sure, but it just seems like that just growing a limb would be so much better. The, the downside of that is that it takes a long time to grow a limb, right, to grow a, a body part. We have to figure out how to make them grow very sure. fast. Sure. I mean, it, it took Deadpool, what, two days to grow that damn hand? Yeah, no spoilers. I haven't seen that movie yet. I haven't seen it either. It it rocked. <laughs> it's okay. I'll say no more. <laughs> hey, so while we're I hear good things. While yeah. we're on three D printers, guys, um, did you hear that Mattel released a um, or unveiled their Thing Maker, which is a three hundred dollar three D printer for kids that lets them make their own toys? Wow, That's oh, man. Very, did you hear about that? Very cool. No, it's really That's cool. awesome. Not- yeah, it comes with an app. So the kids can fashion their own shapes, and I guess there's like an intelligence behind it where it lets them interlock so they can build like a dinosaur that clicks together and whatever. Wow. Um, I'm just just like kind of looking into it now because I'm I'm freak showing on it. Like I, I'm really thinking, I'm, my God, I could get this for my son. Over, you know, maybe like I'll wait till next year, you know, another year. But it's happening where, you know, 3D printing is just starting to go horizontal and spread out to, uh, to everything. Sure. Yeah, we're starting to turn a corner with that technology. Um, just to finish off this discussion, though, a couple other approaches. Uh, so you could also grow human parts in animals. Like, for example, you can genetically engineer a pig, and they're working on this, you can genetically engineer a pig so that it has a human immune system. 
And that, Neat. right? So then you could transplant the heart of a pig into a human and you, you won't get the species rejection. You know, you could try to make it so that it doesn't have, it has as little rejection as possible. It's like a universal human donor organ. It may not be able to get exactly to that point, but at least it will be, have like minimal rejection. It's still not as good as using your own cells to have an identical match. But again, that problem is you're starting from scratch there, right? Like how long would it take to grow a heart big enough to transplant into an adult? You know, could take a while. Could take a few mm. years. Uh, but still, like if you, if there are people who are on the transplant waiting list for literally years and, or the, like you, you know that it's coming. Uh, you have a lot of years of advance warning that you're going to need to do a transplant. And so that just would be a potentially viable option for them, you know, growing one from scratch. But other people know it's like they, you, you have very short notice and you need, so if you're being able to just, and we don't have enough donors for all the organs that we need. So like being able to just grow hearts and pigs that are genetically human would be one solution as well. Of course, you could go the sci-fi route and you could have a clone of yourself in storage for when you need body parts. Shit. Yeah. Yeah, but that's there's some ethical considerations there. Ah, just grow them, ah, grow them without a brain. <laughs> yeah, <to laughs> grow them without a brain. I don't, I don't, I don't think people are going to be so blasé about that. But I think there'll probably still be some ethical considerations. But yeah, I think it's just meat at that point. But but think about the expense of keeping a whole body alive for years or decades and, until you need it. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of a solution for the very rich, I would imagine. Just just top off the door and it'll be good to go. You got to feed it. It doesn't have a brain. So, I mean, whatever. It's oh. just not going to be oh. – you can have them all live in a village and then sacrifice them when you <laughs> that's, that's right. Let's call it the farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to head over to the farm and pick myself up a new leg. You guys saw that movie, right? It's good, yeah. With you, that was you and McGregor in that, yep. right? Yep. All right. And the other option is uh, – is robotics, mm. you know, you have a yeah. robotic well, sure. bionic arm. Yeah. For certain things like limbs, I think that might be the best solution at some point. Or even for, for most things, it could be a good solution. Like, you know, we do mechanical hearts now, uh, but it's really hard. It's really hard to like make a mechanical heart that works as good as a biological heart. It's just, it's really harsh on the blood vessels. You know, it tends to break them down and you got to use anticoagulants to keep them from clotting up. So that's, yeah, that's really tricky. Biological hearts are better, but then you got the rejection issue. So then, mm. you know, so each, each approach has its strengths and strengths and weaknesses. And it's, it'd be very interesting to see 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Oh, jeez. What is, yeah, I think we're probably going to be using all of these things, you know, that there'll be different applications will be optimal for different approaches. There'll be some things that we're 3D printing, some things we're growing, some things we're growing in animals, some things we're using robotics. I think it'll be a Bionic combination implants, of all of yeah. these things. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, it's we're getting there. Uh, we're becoming digital. You know, we're just, we're connecting that digital technology to our analog bodies. Now, you you know there will be a purist backlash to all of this. Of course. Wrongs of people absolutely rejecting it and, just for the yeah. sake of rejection. Initially, initially not, just it's not natural. Yeah, just like they yeah. just like they resist everything. They resist the test tube babies, you know. Remember the baboon heart, the girl with the baboon heart? Remember that whole fiasco? Sure. Um, they'll reject any advance like this. You know, some people will, but like now nobody thinks that in vitro fertilization is a problem, right? That's 
if they do, they're sort of on the fringe. You never hear about them. It's basically totally accepted now in vitro fertilization. And I think it'll be the same. You know, once, once you start saving your kids, you know, with a yep. pig grown heart, no one's going to care. You know what yep, I mean? Exactly. Gosh, we, we can't even save kids with uh, GMOs right now. Oh, wait, that's later in the show. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Oh, that's what they're worried about. They're worried that once you, once you start actually saving family members and loved ones with the technology, then the objections fall by the wayside very quickly. Yeah. You just got to get over that threshold, you know. They'll be totally. The problem is early on when it's in the experimental phase, and you know, people aren't seeing the benefits of it. That's when the crazies come out. But once once the benefits are there, people will very quickly forget about why they ever cared about you know the objections. If history is any guide. So anyway, that was a cool bit of advance there. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. All right, Evan. I understand yes. there's a restaurant I can go to where I can eat mammoth. I want a mammoth oh, steak. <laughs> what? I want mammoth a, steak, mammoth burger, mammoth, mammoth burger, uh, mammoth ribs. Mammoth ribs. Put them on the uh, side of my pull- car. <laughs> I remember that, and the yeah. whole thing tilts over. It tip over. Wait, I think it was a cartoon or something. Yeah. It, it tipped over every week, too. I, mean, I know. I never it, learned. I never, in any case, I'm going to tell you a story about a collection of intrepid explorers and a dinner which puts the phrase mystery meat into a category all of its own. So this group is called the Explorers Club, and they describe themselves as such. The Explorers Club is an international multidisciplinary professional society dedicated to the advancement of field research and the ideal that is vital to preserve the instinct to explore. Since its inception in 1904, the club has served as a meeting point and unifying force for explorers and scientists worldwide. Their headquarters are located at 46 East 70th Street in New York City. Now, the Explorers Club promotes the scientific exploration of land, sea, air, and space by supporting research and education in the physical, natural, and biological sciences. The club's members have been responsible for an illustrious series of famous firsts. First to the North Pole. First to the South Pole. First to the summit of Mount Everest, first to the deepest point of the ocean, and first to the surface of the moon. They are all accomplished by members of that society. Inside their headquarters at their East 70th Street location in New York, they have artifacts, for example, labeled Yeti Scalp. And they also have the remains of a four-tusked mutant element. Mutant elephant. <laughs> mutant <laughs> elephant. Do they have a three-ashed monkey? <laughs> Not yet. Five, is that a five S monkey? It's a five S monkey. Oh, those, those are even more rare. The five S monkey don't get me started. But those. <laughs> uh, to this day, it remains an exclusive and secretive international group of extreme explorers, uh, and one of the better known secrets. Although you know how 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 secretive can this place be? <laughs> one of the better known secrets of the Explorers Club is their annual exotic foods dinner with delicacies such as tarantulas and certain game meats prepared by the finest chefs. But back in the year of our Lord, 1951, much fuss was made about a dinner being held at the Explorers Club where members would feast on a frozen woolly mammoth that was recovered from an expedition from Alaska. Now, the tale about the mammoth being on the menu grew out of a Christian science monitor story that ran several days after the event actually took place. It reported that the chief attraction at the Smorgasbord was a morsel of 250,000-year-old hairy mammoth meat. Yum and bleh, all at the same time. 
The meat had supposedly been hacked from an icy carcass in the Aleutian Islands by a Jesuit-turned-geologist named Bernard Hubbard. His nickname was the Glacier Priest for his intrepid for his intrepid trips across the Arctic. Hubbard claimed to know of a stash of ancient meat, and when he heard the club had been trying to find some, he had a sampling flown down from New York. Uh, he had flown down to New York. In the Grand Ballroom of the Roosevelt Hotel that year, hundreds of scientists and explorers would dig into the prehistoric snack as they traded stories about adventures and, uh, and all the things that they normally do. Now, that the meat went pretty fast. It was gone. Everyone had their little piece, and that was the end of it. But one slice was carefully slipped into a preserving bottle and found its way to Explorers Club member Paul Griswold Howes of the Bruce Museum in Greenwich, Connecticut, because he was unable to attend the dinner, but he requested that a piece of the meat be sent to him. Howes proudly displayed the meat in the bottle in the mammal room of the Bruce Museum, and there it sat for two decades, this grayish lump, hairy lump, in a jar. And, until, and, and it stayed there. And in 2001, the meat was transferred to the Yale Peabody Museum, which we've been to many times, along with other curiosities, and it was filed away in a back room, largely forgotten, until very recently, when a pair of curious Yale researchers got their hands on the specimen. And as the legendary radio broadcaster Paul Harvey would have said at this point, here is the rest of the story. Earlier this month, February 2016, it was reported that researchers, researchers Jessica Glass and Matt Davis from Yale University performed a genetic analysis of the meat, thereby unraveling the mystery of this legendary banquet. In a relatively unexpected twist, the DNA results showed that this meat was not in fact mammoth, but rather green sea turtle. What? Green sea turtle. Green sea turtle, which was also on the menu that evening in 1951 as the soup course, green sea turtle soup. Mm. The authors surmise that the exotic feast of mammoth was likely a publicity stunt meant to drum, meant to drum up press and intrigue for the club. And it apparently worked because these meals persist to this day. They're on their 112th dinner party that they that they that they hold and this uh has turned into a folklore all its own they still talk about it to this day the story gets passed down to younger generations and these are how myths come about yet science has unmasked the secrets of the past and now you know the rest of the story yep as far as i could find there are no uh, well-documented cases of any person ever eating a mammoth uh, there, there are rumors, you know, that this is like one of those m myths that like when Russian peasants come across a frozen mammoth, they'll thaw it out and cut it up and eat it. Uh, but that's, there's no evidence that that is the case that's ever happened. Most animals that are frozen for that period of time are actually mummified. You know, it's not like they're frozen like in your refrigerator, in your freezer. They're not in right. a solid block of ice. They're in like this frozen icy silt that desiccates and dries out the flesh. And so, you know, it wouldn't be the kind of thing that you actually could eat. Right. Preserves it to an extent, but not, not really to the point of being a consumable. Yeah, exactly. Had you ever heard of this specific myth before? Yeah. Well, I, the because first I, time I encountered it was in watching the movie Northern, the, uh, the series, TV series, Northern Exposure. In that TV mm -hmm. series, this is oh. from, I think the nineties, 
I actually yes. really enjoyed it. It's very uh, good series. Or eight, late eighties, late eighties, nineties. The uh, in one episode, like the old codger in the in the town comes across a mammoth. Actually, the the doctor who was like you know the scientist, he finds the mammoth. He's all excited. He wants to re- make it a scientific report, and then he goes back to get it, and it was it's gone. And it turns out the old codger in town had it had it hanging in his garage, and he was cutting it up and eating it. But it, yeah, it was just no way it would be preserved like it was shown in that TV show. Because I had not heard of this before yeah. this particular story. I did not yeah. know this myth existed. So yep. Jay, yeah. It's time for Who's That Noisy? It's Who's That Noisy time. It's Who's That Noisy time. Last week, I played you this sound. What is that? Any guesses, guys? Is it like every creature noise from Star Wars mashed together? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, here's here's what it is. This is a, a very very cool noisy. This is this is sublimation. What's sublimation? Ooh, changing from one state of matter to another really quickly. Well, it's going directly from a solid to a gas, and that yes. produces a noise of some sort. This happens to be dry ice being pressed against steel beams. And when you hear the noise spike, that's when somebody is pushing their hand down and pushing the dry ice to the beam. The heat from the beam is is causing the dry ice to sublimate. And that scream is coming from the gas being like pushed out from the piece of dry ice. Yeah, and, it's like kind of like a, a gas. Like, it's like a fart. It's like a fart. Pretty much, yeah. If you think about it, it's a sublimation fart. Uh, I got a lot of people guessing that it was like a race car or some type of remote control car. Which I didn't, I didn't hear in the sound anywhere, but many people heard that somehow. Thought that was interesting. So we will move on to this week's noisy guys. Take a listen to this. Any ideas? Interesting. So were those two different noises that you were switching back and forth to? or uh, It's a good question. They were all considered the same noise, okay. part of the same noise. Okay, interesting. All right, that's a good one, Jay. If you have any ideas on what that is or any suggestions for a future noisy, email me at wtn at theskepticsguide.org. All right, thanks, Jay. Uh, one quick question. We got a little bit of feedback from a few different people, Evan, about your quote last week from David Suzuki. Yeah, they weren't criticizing the quote itself because the statement does hold true, but they're questioning the real scientific merits of David Suzuki himself. And in doing a little bit of a deeper dive, because I admittedly don't did not know much about him, I I had heard his name before and he has been talked about in certain uh, science circles, um, he's got some, uh, well, he's there are some issues there. Let's just say when it comes to GMOs, <laughs> he's not exactly on, I think, the right side of, of this argument. Um, in doing some research on this, uh, some critics of him talk about Suzuki being about talking about GMOs in the context of corporate greed, punishing farmers, misleading consumers. A lot of the things that we talk about um, that are kind of really false arguments that the GMO crowd makes. And Suzuki apparently has lined himself up 
uh, with the with the anti-GMO crowd in these aspects. Mm-hmm. So that that's not a good thing. Um, also, something else I came across, and, and there are some other examples. Um, of course, we've talked before about the Fukushima disaster that happened in, in Japan with the earthquake and the nuclear uh, and the nuclear meltdown of the plant there. Suzuki was very obviously critical of of what happened there, and also was criticized for having, um, well, basically panicked people by saying that another disaster of this kind would require the mass evacuation of the North American coast. And he's had to actually go back and uh, walk those statements back. He says, I regret having said it, although my sense of potential widespread disaster remains and the need for an urgent international response in dealing with it uh, needs to be dealt with. So, those are two instances in which he's really not been a a strong, you know, it's not straight taken a strong scientific or good, clear scientific opinion on these matters, and he should rightly rightly be uh, criticized for those and and some other things. Just a couple of, of examples. So David Suzuki, you know, uh, well known, but not necessarily the the skeptic we would really like him to be. So essentially, you got to vet these quotes quotes better, Evan. Look, the quote itself, I thought, you know, you gotta, was fine. You got to vet the source, too. I understand that. Well, let me, let me, you'll never hear me say anything, you know, quoted by Joseph Goebbels or uh, anything <laughs> like that. That I know better. Right. And not that we can't even use the quote. We just have to mention it, I think. You know what I mean? It's like people could say dumb and smart things, and we might want to quote their smart thing, but we should sure. mention, put the person into context sometimes. Uh, this would have been a case where I think we should have done that. Okay. That's right. That's right. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. Did you know they have a new service called The Great Courses Plus Video Learning Service? It's really great. It gives you access to a huge library of great course lectures, so many that you'll be there forever just getting so much information. And... We love the Great Courses Plus so much. They're giving our SGU listeners an incredible opportunity right now. The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, absolutely free. Guys, I will guarantee if you like science at all, you will love the Inexplicable Universe presented by none other than Neil deGrasse Tyson. He has that rare talent. He can explain the most complicated things like quantum foam or string theory in such easy to understand terms. This guy is at the top of his game. Definitely you will love the Inexplicable Universe. So please check it out. For a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream Neil deGrasse Tyson's course, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, a $95 value, and hundreds of other awesome courses for free. Stream from any internet-connected TV, PC, or a device through The Great Courses Plus apps. But this free offer is only available for a limited time. So you should probably get on it right now if you're interested to stream the inexplicable universe free. You must go to the great courses plus dot com slash skeptics. That's the great courses plus dot com slash skeptics. And that's the word P.L.U.S. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. We are being joined now by Kevin Falta. Kevin, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Yeah, hi. Thanks. Nice to be here again. So Kevin is a professor and chairman of the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida, and he is a pretty energetic science communicator. This is like your third time on our show, I think? I think it's my fourth. 
Fourth? Yeah, okay. I think so. A couple of things of, that I wanted to talk to you about. One is since the last time you were on the show, uh, you've been through a little bit of the ringer, right? I mean, you were targeted by some anti-GMO activists. Tell us what happened. Well, this goes back about a year where they just requested a public records request, which is no big deal. It happens around universities all the time. And um, I was one of 14 people who were asked for our emails going back a few years by a group called U.S. Right to Know. And uh, long story short, they uh, developed, uh, they took packets of 4,600 emails and took little bits out of them and distributed them to journalists who wrote stories that were really, um, quite a few of them were cherry picked where you would take a sentence out of one here and one there, maybe glue them together and develop a story around that. They were really, it was really awful for a long time because just the amount of, I would read the paper and go, I didn't say that. How could anyone even think that? Um, but long story short, it got really vicious. A lot of bad stuff happened. And, um, I had to drop out for a while, had to disappear, um, just to stay just for my own mental health. And, uh, but now things are getting better. I think I'm coming back and emerging out a little stronger, maybe. Mm -hmm. But essentially they were claiming that you were a hired gun for Monsanto. Right. That was their that was their narrative. Yeah. Even two weeks ago, um, there was a meme going around that called me Monsanto's hitman. And but that's that's how it works, is that the way that they have constructed the narrative is that Monsanto is such a, a evil company that all they have to do is attach you to it. And you can automatically lose credibility with anyone associated in their movement or, or anyone in the middle who's just been tainted by that story. So, and I help them make that association. So I'm not entirely, uh, guiltless here. Um, I had some support from Monsanto for a communications program that, that was a tiny amount of money, relatively speaking. They never sponsored my research. They never sponsored me. They never gave me anything. But that was enough to connect some dots for some people to make it really uncomfortable for me. They, they did sponsor your gas bill and your lunch, though, didn't they? Well, that was it. They covered the cost of, uh, yeah, they covered the cost of uh, subs and donuts for uh, when I would teach a science communication class for scientists. And I would spend time at a university, and I don't have a budget for this, except for when I pay it personally. Um, and I do that, and that's fine. Um, that's my job. And I'm back doing them again. I'm doing one at uh, University of Missouri and Michigan State in the next few weeks. So very good. So in retrospect, do you think that it was a mistake to, you know, allow that, that tenuous connection with Monsanto just because it, it fed the, uh, the narrative, the shill narrative? Uh, yeah, there's, there's two answers. And, and one of them is, you know, if you look at it strictly from a practical side, Companies should be participating in covering the costs of university research and even some outreach. That's not a bad thing. I'd rather do it on a company dime than on, uh, you know, the public dime if a yeah. company's willing to pay for it. But the flip side is, is that by accepting those dollars at the university and going into the communications program, that donation now created the ability for them to create a story. So in retrospect, I would have never have touched it. I told you at the time that that was the case. Case, right? And you, I know you were right. You were a hundred percent right. And, um, so, even, which is fine. I mean, the, the thing is, you, oh, whoa, whoa, Kevin, don't ever tell Steve that. Oh my God. <laughs> the ego that we have to deal with now for the next few weeks. 99.44. All right. Yeah. You were 99.44% right. Like, just like an ivory soap. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, definitely a case where, um, 
hindsight is 2020 and I could have never have predicted in my wildest dreams the anger that would be built around that. I really thought here's a company that's, you know, that people say a lot of bad things about that's really doing the right thing by providing funds for scientists to teach communication about science. Yeah, it's about per- perception. And I remember at the time you gave me the first answer, like, this is what we need to do. You said, we're whatever, we're a public university. We need to, you know, our part of our job is to coordinate with companies who, who use the results of our science and they support the science and it's all good. And I totally agree with that. But the problem is we are also engaged in a PR war. They're not playing fair. It's not like they're intellectually honest. You know what I mean? So it's unfortunate, but I think that's that's the reality. Well, and, and the other the other guys who are um, in the anti uh, genetic engineering camp, uh, they can accept money at universities all day, and no one really cares. There's kind of a halo around um, those technologies that make them immune from criticism. Yet those of us who are in uh, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't commercialize genetically engineered products. I'm in a horticultural state where we grow fruits and vegetables that are non GM and my research is on light, but I understand that technology and I'm really excited to contribute to the public conversation. And that's why they didn't like me. Here's the other thing. The U.S. right to know, the ones who did, who did this whole thing, they are literally actual shills for big organic. They literally are funded oh in part God. by an organic lobby, a lobby for a private industry. Isn't that – so then that irony is completely lost on them. But of course, what you you say is that's okay, right, being funded by an organic – because that – because they think the organic lobby is correct and therefore being funded by them or studies being funded by them, that's all good. But because they think Monsanto is evil, if you're funded by the corporate side uh, – then then you're just a shill. That's right. They're actually funded uh, in big part by something called Organic Consumers Union or Association, Organic Consumers Association, which isn't really much to do with organic production, which, which I fully support. I'm all for farmers making more money and, and any kind of technology you can develop to decrease environmental impact. If you can do that with organic, great. But um, – the OCA is really a, an awful organization that really just criticizes genetic engineering and, and doesn't have much to do with organic production. So, Kevin, you mentioned that they took sentences out of context. Did they stand alone or were they actually kind of stringing them together uh, to make statements that are even out of context more, you know, more dissimilar to what your intent was? Or was it just an out of context statement here and another yeah, one there? Yeah, it's all of the above. So they- I've seen out of context statements that when you looked at them in context are completely innocent. I've seen things put together and hybridized. And then I've seen the third state, which is my favorite, where they start out with a real sentence and then add like three or four other things that are things I've never said. And it's pretty clear I've never said them because they're things like, um, you know, the curriculum is for sale, just donate. And, uh, you know, I'm a ninth degree ninja dropping from the ceiling to poison your children. You know, th- those kinds of things have had. <laughs> um, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. If you Google my name and uh, look in images, you can find them all. They're genetically modifying your wow. comments is what you're saying. That's right. <laughs> I think you guys have gone through a very similar experience to what climatologists, climate scientists have gone through. You know, 20 years ago, climate scientists, nobody cared <laughs> you know, what they were doing. I mean, they were not in the public eye. They didn't really have to 
be savvy, be media savvy as scientists. They were just, you know, they were, re- I'm sure they got very, almost no media contacts, right? If you were a climate scientist, that's, it wasn't the kind of thing that would put you in, in the, in the public arena or have you on a journalist's shortlist. And then the whole climate change controversy happened and they were thrown into it. And I think they were unprepared. Uh, and they were overwhelmed by this angle, this, you know, PR angle to it. The same thing happened to them about FOIA emails, you know, all of that. And now I think they're learning and they're starting to get savvy and starting to fight back. And I think you guys are going through the same process. Yeah, I very much agree. I think that as scientists in general, we're learning just to be, just to understand how important transparency is and how when you're dealing with a comp, a, a public that has questions, that is skeptical, that you can't just blow them off and say, well, the technology is fine. Don't worry. You have to understand that, that they are just concerned and help and teach them. And that's step one. The other side is the trust side that we have to be able to earn their trust before that education matters. And I think we've all learned so much about that. And I think you can see much uh, improvement going forward. All right. I want to pivot to a story which I found fascinating. Uh, this is a, about a GMO banana. And you've written about this. I've written about it. Now I've looked, I looked pretty deeply into this. And this is just a perfect example of why, in my opinion, you know, demonstrating how fanatical and how wrong the anti-GMO lobby is. Do you want to give a, a summary for us about this particular GMO? Oh, sure. I can talk about this one. So bananas are a staple food crop in the developing world. So not the dessert bananas that we get, but um, starchy kind of plantains that are a significant part of the diet in the developing world. Yum. It's, it, yeah. They're, and then actually, they are really good. And you get to like maybe somewhere around a kilogram to two kilograms of bananas a day in the diet of people in some parts of the world. At the same time, these same areas of the planet are stricken with vitamin A deficiency, which is the third major cause of death behind things like HIV, AIDS, and malaria, um, at least in terms of clinical diseases. And so this is a perfect marriage. Here's an opportunity for you to genetically engineer the banana with pro-vitamin A, meaning beta-carotene that is converted by the body to vitamin A, so the stuff in carrots that makes them orange, beta-carotene that upon consumption is converted to pro-vitamin A and could potentially alleviate the symptoms of vitamin A deficiency, which which kills 2 million, well, the numbers are wiggly because it's hard to say, but clinical manifestations suggest somewhere between uh, between half a million and 2 million children a year die from preventable vitamin A deficiency. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Again, the reason why I like this story is because it breaks every anti-GMO trope, right? So it's not being developed by Monsanto, by Syngenta, mm-hmm. by any big ag corporation. It's being developed by governments and uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So it's basically a humanitarian effort. Uh, there's no issue of like patents or anything like that. It's not even transgenic because it's taking a gene from another banana, right? Uh, yes, it uses a banana, a gene from a banana called Asapina. Um, I'm not making that up. Uh, Asapina. <laughs> and, uh, it does use though a transgenic, I believe the promoter in this one, at least in the preliminary constructs that I've read in the literature, is from either maize or from, um, uh, is, it may be from maize. So the sequence which is controlling the expression of the Asapina phytoene synthase gene, which is a gene required for, um, carotenoid synthesis. 
Uh, that is from Ossipina. So those are the promoters from corn. That, well, not sure, well, that's interesting, though. It's a technical detail because usually they only – I thought they only had to use a new promoter when they were taking genes from distant species that would have a different promoter. Why, why couldn't the promoter that already goes along with the gene – this is a very technical question, if you know, but I don't, I don't even know if you know the answer to that. My guess is is that you want to increase the levels of beta beta carotene or of the enzyme of the phytoene synthase enzyme. That the uh, native amounts that are present in uh, asapina are not necessarily as high as they could be if you were to drive that gene a little harder. I see. So this is to increase expression. Yes, they're using a gene. Uh, yeah. The maize gene is a poly. The promoters from something called polyubiquitin. So this is something that is on at a relatively high expression level. Okay. Okay, so technically the promoter is a transgene, but it's still from corn, right? It's, it's not like a fish mato. It's a <laughs> gene from a banana and a promoter from corn. Big deal. I mean, I don't think that's going to provoke the same kind of ick factor that – It's a it, – no, but it's a cornana. Evil. Okay. And this is not – has nothing to do with pesticides, right? That's right. It's just going to increase the vitamin A. I, I, I've read they're also working on getting more iron in there and maybe, and they're also working on disease resistance, but it's primarily increasing the, the, the vitamin A. And there's no environmental issue at all. This is interesting. Tell us about, so bananas that we consume generally don't have big honking seeds in them, which means they only really can, we, they reproduce or they grow by taking cuttings from existing plants, so they're all clones, right? That's right, right. So the, the existing banana we, we consume, if you look in wild bananas, which grow in the understory throughout Southeast Asia and other parts of Asia, they um, they have very large leaves, degrade in the understory, but their fruits are loaded with big seeds that are somewhere like, uh, you know, it's um, probably almost a centimeter across, and they're hard as rock. And uh, very little pulp inside that banana casing, inside the inside the, the uh, peel of of the atheist nightmare. The bananas that you that have been domesticated started with naturally occurring polyploids, so they all have an extra set of chromosomes, which is pretty cool. And from those first naturally occurring polyploids, humans have been able to vegetatively propagate from usually from suckers that come off the bottom of the plants or even through tissue culture, you can generate genetically identical bananas, which mean these huge plantations are all genetically identical, which mm-hmm. is one of the big problems in the disease side. Right. So how you can't make the, therefore a hybrid banana, right? Or can you? You could make one. It's difficult because that's one of the problems with banana breeding is that pollen is not always viable um, very long. There's a lot of other issues to get plants to be fertile in synchrony with each other. Um, it's a real difficult task, and that's why we've been so dependent on such a narrow range of banana varieties. Um, there are 1,500 varieties of bananas or so. We only get to see maybe one or two, and that's because those are suitable for production. Yeah, and that's that's the Cavendish banana we we enjoy now. Right, and then there's the there's what there's like 60 or something throughout the world that are consumed. Again, a lot of them are the staple bananas, not the dessert bananas, like we're talking about in Uganda and and other parts of Africa. That's why I think you know genetic modification though really can speed up this process. It's not like they could just use techniques that like you could use with corn or with other things where you can pollen is is abundant and you could make tons like thousands of hybrids and try to pick the best one. They can't really use those same kind of techniques, right? 
Exactly. I mean, yeah. you're, you're 90% of the way there. You've got a good, um, horticultural product, which is the most important part. How do you have good fruit? And, uh, in a way, banana, as you say, is the perfect candidate for genetic engineering. Because if you go around the world, you have problems with xanthomonas wilt, which is a bacterial disease. You've got banana bunchy top virus, black cicatoga. You've got, um, fusarium tropical race four, which is a, um, major, major problem. And every one of these diseases, has at least one demonstrated genetic engineering solution. Yep. Oh. And some of them are even in the field. And it's not, like you said before, it's not USA companies. This is the government of Uganda. This is the government of Kenya, of, of uh, Nigeria. Um, they're taking the lead on these projects. A little Gates money in there maybe, but yeah. they're doing the work for their own people. You know, you ask people who are against GMO why they're against GMO. They talk about pesticides, about Monsanto, about patents, you know, about it being unnatural, whatever. None of those things really are elements here. This is a humanitarian project. Project. It's going to not increase pesticides. It's not going to do anything bad that they talk about. Nothing. And yet they're still opposing it. They're, they're opposing it because they just don't like GM technology. That's right. And I think ironically, the, the, the banana peel may be on the slippery slope of acceptance of other crops, right? <laughs> Good yeah. one, Kevin. That once you, uh, once the first <laughs> domino falls, and you see benefits to people, you see proven benefits for smallholder farmers um, in uh, in the developing world, it'll be a lot harder to taint this technology in a negative way um, domestically. And I think they feel that it, it's the same thing with citrus greening in Florida, that if we solve this citrus crisis with a transgenic solution, that it kind of opens the door to wider acceptance, um, less fear, and uh, maybe development of more products that could benefit the big companies. So I think that's it. Yeah, so I, I don't think we have to speculate too much. So in an open letter by groups opposing this GM banana, they they wrote – this is now a quote from the letter. We will not stand by idly as attempts are made to systematically genetically modify Africa's staple foods and in the process gain a massive positive public relations coup by claiming to have conquered health problems – at the unnecessary risk of two Africans. So let's unpack that a little bit. Basically what they're saying is we would rather millions of children go blind and die mm -hmm. every year than to risk a public relations coup in the pro-GMO camp. Yeah. We cannot allow yeah. anything good to come out of GM because then people might soften their stance against it. That's what they're saying. It's pretty clear, right? Yeah, that's clear as crystal. And, and that's why they even stand in a way of something like what's happening now at, at Iowa State University. It's just yeah. the, all they're doing right now is, so the anti-GMO, uh, folks have always said, well, you don't test it on humans. How do we know it works? If you're going to test it, you're going to test it on the poor people of the developing world. All those claims. And so a, a test was coordinated with one of the world experts in measuring serum levels of carotenoids at Iowa State. They were going to do tests using, uh, using human subjects. They recruited, uh, they said they would give, uh, students 900 bucks to eat three bananas. And one of those bananas would be a GM banana. And after each banana, you would have blood taken at some interval in order to test for the presence of vitamin A or pro vitamin A in the blood, as well as the time course of accumulation. And also, would the levels be sufficient? So it's the testing that people claim is never done. 
and here it's going to be completed. Um, they had 500 applicants and only chose 12. They're protesting the testing. So they're complaining about there being no testing, and now they're complaining about there being testing, right? Uh-huh. This is like trampling the golden rice field trials in the Philippines. You know, you, you can't argue that these things aren't being studied and then trash the or protest the experiments when we're trying to study it. But guys, who who is listening to them and how are they making oh, an impact? God. Lots of people. Yeah, I think if you look online, just the uh, it's the typical fervor that's generated around any time you talk about genetic engineering or genetic engineering solution. That even when I wrote my blog the other day about this, it invited just a storm on Twitter about people saying how uh, this does nothing for the developing world. You just want to poison people for Monsanto, you know, the usual stuff. And the sad part is even a year ago, I was at um, Iowa State giving a seminar. The faculty member who is going to do this in the food science department, she's not a big, uh, you know, GMO person. She doesn't talk about genetic engineering all the time. She's an expert in measuring a vitamin in the blood. And that's why they accept, that's why they wanted her to do the work. You know, so she's really perplexed by this. Why are people stopping a test that simply is measuring how the bioavailability of a necessary vitamin? Oh, it's, it's really incredible. This, I think, exposes them wide open, in my opinion. So I want to address some of the arguments they raise. They all raise all the usual safety things, which are nonsense. We've talked about a million times. But uh, they also say that, that this solution is not necessary because all you have to do is give these people vitamin A supplements. Well, it's expensive to deliver supplements. A lot of people live in places where you don't have necessary necessarily have the logistics to deliver this. And at the same time, uh, you have to consume the supplements with other food in order for vitamin A to be absorbed optimally. Um, at least that's what, it, on the surface, why it's a bad idea. Uh, let people grow it in their crops. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing is they've been doing, there have been supplementation programs for decades. And they have an effect, but they're not penetrating. You know, this, there are still millions of people, children dying and going blind despite existing supplementation programs. So clearly they're not, not enough. And it's, it's just silly to say that we don't need this solution when we have other solutions, when those other solutions are not sufficient. They're already being implemented. There is a sustainability issue because it's something you, like once you get the uh, vitamin A enhanced bananas, and there, it. yeah, the, it's, it's self-sustaining. Whereas the, the supplementation program is something that has to be ongoing and funded all the time, uh, and comes and goes. You know, and and you also have to have compliance. You know, efforts to to get people to be compliant with it. It's a it's a constant ongoing effort that will wax and wane, uh, as opposed to just repl- You know, just in fortifying the crop. The other thing they so in this letter they specifically mention this as well. They say, well, they're already, they already have vitamin A enhanced sweet potatoes in Africa. Why don't they just grow those? Which is interesting because, so on the one hand, they're saying we don't need to fortify food because we have supplementation programs. Then on the other hand, they said this, this fortified food is useful. Why don't we use that? But there's no difference between the fortified sweet potato and this fortified banana, except the sweet potato was done through hybridization and the banana was done through GM technology. So they're praising the strategy on the one hand, condemning it on the other. The only difference is how we got the vitamin A into the crop in the first place. And of course, 
the reason why we want to do this to the banana is because we want to get to the Ugandans who aren't growing sweet potatoes. They're living off of the banana staple crop. That's their staple crop. If they were growing sweet potatoes, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It's like kind of like the kettle defense or like throwing up any argument they could think of, even though it's not internally coherent. The really interesting part about that is that the sweet potato has a tDNA insert. So it has a genetic engineering insert that occurred naturally from an agrobacterium-mediated gene transfer that was a cornerstone of the domestication of the sweet potato. That's right. So every sweet potato you consume is genetically engineered. But the the reason why we like bringing that up is because one of the arguments you hear is that there is no way in nature a gene could horizontally transfer from one distant group to another, and that's incorrect. This is a case where in nature a gene got from a soil bacteria into the sweet potato. So they're wrong. They're just wrong on that specific claim. This is really that that's going to be a critical tool in our toolbox in the coming decades. It's going to be it's clearly going to be critically important and they're trying to shoot it down. Hey Bob, can I get you really mad? Yeah. <laughs> matter. So it's you matter. So here's the deal. They in on the ground in places like Uganda and Kenya, US NGOs are actually fomenting fear there by talking about how the orange comes from a gene from a poisonous snake, how if you eat the bananas, you will be uh, sterile. Um, there was a commercial that was on the radio there that you can find online that says that if these are, are planted, they will give you cancer and make you sterile. Um, it's all about an active ground campaign to turn the population against a technology that the government is moving forward with. And then they'll oh, say, look, people wow. don't want this. It's that, that's why we're yeah. against it, because the people don't want it. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. After your fear mongering campaign based upon <laughs> lies and misinformation. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kevin, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you so much. It's really wonderful to be on SGU. Thank you. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Movement Watches. You guys all have your watches now, right? Do you like it as much as I like mine? <laughs> yes, Steve. I love mine. Beautiful, stylish. You can wear it as just an accessory for everyday use or for stylish evening wear. It really fits for any occasion. I really do like mine. The great thing, guys, with, about these is that these these really are four to $500 watches, but they're so inexpensive, only $95 because you're getting it direct, direct from the manufacturer. So that's why they're so high quality and yet still reasonably priced. Yeah, Bob, the watches start at $95, no hassles, you order online, free returns, 24-month warranty, which is a really, really nice warranty. You join the movement by saying, no big brand retail markups. Right, Bob? That's right, Jay. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash skeptics today, and they'll give you 15% off your entire purchase. mvmtwatches.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. This is a good opportunity for you all to get one up on Kara since she's not here this week. So I made it especially hard. (laughs) <laughs> right, so we'll all be one down. Great. No, no just, it's a normal week. <laughs> just I find the items I find. Okay, here we go. Item number one, scientists report the analysis of a new species 
Cororipithecus abyssinicus from a greater than 40% complete specimen they believe represents the most recent common ancestor between humans and gorillas. And number two, a new app turns smartphones into a global seismic detection network. And item number three, a recent survey finds that Americans are more likely to have a great deal of confidence in scientific leaders than any other community other than the military. Jay, go first. Okay, this first one where the scientists report the analysis of the new species, it's, that's pretty interesting. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's greater than 40% complete specimen. You know, when you say that we have a, a common ancestor between human and gorillas, how far back do you have to go? That's the question. We have a common ancestor with every other living thing on the planet, right? Totally, yeah, totally understand. But that's that's the million dollar question. All right, I just don't know. I don't. That's interesting, but I just don't know enough to really. My gut is saying that that would be something from a very long time ago, and saying that they have more than forty percent. It's interesting. Let's see the second one here. Uh, this about the app that turns smartphones into global seismic detection detection network. A uh, very smart idea, uh, absolutely doable because they have accelerometers in them. I have seen no reason why uh, this one isn't believable. It's perfectly cromulent. I will move on. The last one here. It says the the study that finds Americans are more, li- more likely to have a great deal of confidence in scientific leaders. Uh, you know what? I think that one's the fake. The scientific leaders. I do. Okay. I believe that one is a fake. All right, Bob. Let's see. The, uh, the most common ancestor. I mean, it's not that long ago, Jay. I mean, we're only talking probably a few million years. Yeah, that would be awesome. I mean, I don't know why this – nothing leaping out that, that this wouldn't be, make much sense. Sure, that would be, be great. And the app, the app, sure, that makes sense too, detecting a – seismic waves my you know i know they they have accelerometers my question is are they sensitive enough to detect something i you know i would think mm. they would be pretty pretty subtle so that's my only problem with that is in terms of is sensitivity confidence in scientific leaders um, americans have a great deal of confidence than any other co- community what other community Amer- what any what cultures countries no no look like Lawyers or teachers or politicians or whatever. You know what I mean? Only military leaders have higher confidence than scientific leaders. It seems like a no-brainer that that Americans generally don't have a lot of confidence. Uh, maybe that maybe looking through the skeptical lens though, it, it it just kind of enhances that. I mean, generally, you know, generally speaking, I guess people do trust scientists. Um, but this is saying that Americans are more likely to have – the only one that's really rubbed me wrong and probably not a great reason to pick it. I'll say the, the uh, scientific confidence. I'll say that as fiction as well. And Evan. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, all right. I guess I'll just jump right to it. I also had a problem with the great deal of confidence in scientific leaders. I think we're giving Americans maybe a little bit more credit, frankly, <laughs> than, uh, than be- is being stated here in this particular one. I'm trying to think of some of the other, uh, you know, groups that Bob, I think you were trying to think of as well that, um, other people may have a little more confidence in that they're second on that list. I don't think so. They're probably more down in the middle, maybe somewhere in the middle of the list. So I'll say that that one's fiction as well. All right. So you guys are all in agreement. Uh, let's start with number two. A new app turns smartphones into a global seismic detection network. You guys all think that one is science. And that one is science. 
Uh, so, Jay, cool. yes, you are correct. Smartphones have an accelerometer in them, and uh, this app essentially uses that accelerometer to detect a the vibrations of a an earthquake, essentially a seismic event. This is from UC Berkeley. You see Berkeley scientists, they're releasing a free Android app available in the, in the app store called MyShake. MyShake. It's available now. You can go and get it. Once enough phones have MyShake running, it runs in the background. It uses very little power, they say, but you know how those things work. My fear would be it be a battery drainer, but you know, I, I'm going to give it a try. We'll see how I have an Android. We'll see how it how it works. It runs in the background and it has an algorithm. When it when the accelerometer behaves in a way that it says this way, this is an earthquake. That's what we're experiencing right now. It sends that data, including your GPS location, to the central location to the UC Berkeley seismologists, and then they can use this as essentially a global seismic detection network. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that, yeah, is that is cool. cool. The, the phone. Imagine the phone has to be at rest when it's taking. I don't know. These, uh, maybe if you're, if you're having an earthquake, no matter what you're doing at the time, it's probably going to that earthquake will be on top how, of everything else. How subtle an earthquake does it claim to detect? They say above a magnitude five. Okay, that's sign. That's that's pretty significant. I think you'd feel that. Yeah, magnitude you, you, five you, is pretty. Intense. Five is pretty intense. Yeah. The one I felt when I was in Virginia was three point four. So five is a lot stronger than that. Steve, yeah. when that happened, did you just start screaming? No. I remember I was on the can at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, were on the tur- you were on the toilet. <laughs> I'm going to die in the toilet like Elvis. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, that'll be cool. Download it. Give it a try. I don't really live in an earthquake-prone area. None of us do, so probably would never get any use. But I think I've probably had my one earthquake experience in my life already. All right, let's go back to number one. Oh. Scientists report the analysis of a new species, Cororopithecus abyssinicus, from a greater than 40% complete specimen that they believe represents the most common recent, the most recent common ancestor between humans and gorillas. You guys all think this one is science, and this one is the fiction. Ah, sorry, guys. Damn, damn. Yeah, this is the fiction. So that is a real species. However, it is known from nine teeth. Nine teeth. Nine okay. teeth. That's not exactly 40%. It's not 40%. No, it's not. And it's probably from three different individuals. Oh. Nine teeth from three different individuals. And they date from between 10 and 10.5 million years ago. Mm. Wow. Wait, the three different individuals were time. dating 3.9 million years ago? Yeah. That's right. They were each <laughs> other. <laughs> all like all menage of course, trois. yes. Yeah. yeah. So the you know it's amazing how much we can tell from teeth, but still it's just teeth. This is a gorilla. It was probably they're saying that it, the features suggest it may be a basal gorilla. It might be like at the base of the gorilla uh, yeah. tree, and therefore yeah. <laughs> you know the the base of the gorilla twig could, twig could also be the base of the human twig, right? Because where we split, where they the gorilla split off from both chimps and humans, so. They're saying this pushes back by about two million years the presumed date of the last common ancestor between humans and gorillas based purely on genetic analysis. That figure they said was maybe closer to eight million years. But if this is truly a basal gorilla, that would push it back to at least 10 million years because that means that gorillas split off at that time. Does that make sense? But also these, these may don't necessarily have to be the, a common ancestor. And again, there's just teeth. 
There's not nearly enough information to say, oh, yeah, this thing is like where humans and chimps split off from gorillas. But it's definitely from around that time. It, it, they're saying it's a gorilla and it could be a basal gorilla. So that's that's the new bit. But, yeah, not, I mean, a 40% complete skeleton from this time period would be huge. That would be a huge find. This is a period in the fossil record where we have a paucity of fossils, although in the last 10 years, 20 years, they, they have been filling it out quite a bit. So we are starting to, to, to discover, but still this like seven to 20 million year period is still relatively few hominid or hominoid fossil finds. So the, the branching between gorillas, chimps and humans is still not, not nearly as many specimens as we would need to have to, to, to flesh that out. Um, so important find, but not nearly as huge as, you know, uh, a 40% complete skeleton. That would be nice though. Okay, all of this means that a recent survey finds that Americans are more likely to have a great deal of confidence in scientific leaders than any other community other than the military is science. Well, that's ple- pleasantly surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bob, I think you you are just being biased, and I've yeah. been reading these kind of surveys for years. Scientists are always among the the most respected professions. There's still a great deal of respect for science and scientists. Uh, this is a survey that was presented recently at the National, at the National Science Foundation. It was a survey of 1,500 people. Americans. Americans, yeah. And they said that about 80% of the respondents agreed that scientific research needs funding from the government. Um, mm-hmm. only about four in 10, about four in 10 said the country is spending too little to support scientific research. Only one in 10 said they thought that they spent too much. The, the survey also concluded that science knowledge among the general public has remained stable in recent years. That always depends on how you measure mm. it. Yeah. yeah. More people are using the internet as a source for their science information. Surprise, surprise. They said nearly half. So that's where they get pretty much all of their science information from. Um, only about half of respondents say they're worried about climate change. Probably falls along political lines, not surprisingly. It doesn't speak to the concern, though, that what people perceive as science may not really be science. Even when we encounter this, obviously there are people who are spiritual anti-scientists. But most of the people that we deal with, like anti-vaccinationists or whatever, or even anti-GMO crowd that we talked about on this show, they think that they are going with the science. They're just doing it wrong. You know, They think that science is on their side, but they're just cherry-picking the bad science that supports their ideology. You know what I'm saying? And they're That's and right. they're stuck in an echo chamber so they don't realize it. All right. Well, sorry to sweep you guys this week. Sure you are. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all right. I know. It's a terrible <laughs> thing. Isn't we'll get you next time. Right. There's travesty. always a next time. All right, Evan, take us home with a quote. All right. A good one. I'm making up for last week. The many instances of forged miracles and prophecies and supernatural events which in all ages have either been detected by contrary evidence or which detect themselves by their absurdity prove sufficiently the strong propensity of mankind to the extraordinary and the marvelous and ought reasonably to beget a suspicion against all relations of this kind. And that was written by David Hume many, 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 many years ago. And essentially what he... And it, the, the, maybe the modern, more uh, pithy take on this is extraordinary claims retwi- require extraordinary yeah. evidence. It's another sort of short way of saying it. 
David Hume, of course, Scottish philosopher, historian, economist, and essayist who is best known today for his highly influential system of radical philosophical empiricism, skepticism, and naturalism had a very profound effect on the founding fathers of the United States. Absolutely. Yeah, David Hume is awesome. And he is impeccable. He has no pseudoscientific skeletons in his closet, I would would imagine. (laughs) Not that I've come across (laughs) yet, but if you find any, please share them with me. I would love to learn. Okay, well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Thanks, Steve. Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. 